the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're talking to Kevin Brennan, the communications officer of the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're talking about COVID and uh, what we're experiencing with a great amount of new cases. Uh, Kevin, thank you as always for joining us. Sure, Nick. Good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. Yes, well, you guys have been working hard on COVID since March, and we're now into November. And uh, with with that going on, how are we doing? We're, we're noticing large surge of, of new cases. Do we have an idea how it's going in Cuyahoga County? Yes, unfortunately, we've we've broken a few uh, thresholds, whereas we've now uh, incurred over 15,000 cases. Uh, as of last Friday, our count was 15,247 cases. And also, unfortunately, we've broken 600 deaths. We were at 602 uh, deaths last week. So along with that, uh, our case totals are going up. Um, the rate of fatalities is going up. Uh, one very alarming thing is that our positivity rate continues to rise. Um, and what we mean by that is the number of the percentage of people uh, that will test positive by uh, uh, testing mechanisms being set up through the uh, the local hospitals. And just to give you an idea, the first uh, week of October, we were under 4%. We were at about 3.5% positivity. So that's 3.5 people out of every 100 people. Uh, going into the last week of October, that had risen to 10.1%. And unfortunately, I think when we come out with our new data tomorrow, we will still be even higher. So that's a very troubling uh, piece of data on its own. What are we finding with the rate of death? Uh, have we learned anything new concerning uh, what what's causing some people who have COVID to die? Um, it seems to be in my non-clinical, non-doctor or nurse seat here, it seems to be just the acceleration of other symptoms that can come from comorbidities. Uh, We see that a lot in the long-term care environment. Uh, We still have the largest percentage, I believe, of fatalities in that older age group, uh, meaning probably 50 or 60 and up. I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately, but I think that's what it is. And so, you know, it seems to be that combination of symptoms and COVID seems to, you know, accelerate some of those symptoms and then bring some of its own. Um, I think one of the things we worry about here heading into winter when we look at it is the possible um, combination of flu and COVID, uh, being that flu, uh, if it is unchecked, can often lead to pneumonia, which is a respiratory illness, and we know that COVID has some very serious respiratory effects as well. What What are some of the symptoms that people have that uh, could be amplified if they do uh, contract COVID? Uh, well, example, I think it's... What's the well, problem? Yeah, what we see is people, as I mentioned, in respiratory situations, so people who are asthmatic or have chronic bronchitis or people who have COPD, 
um, you know, this can be a real issue for them. Um, one of the other symptoms that we see with COVID, and one of the things that we hear people complaining about is the feeling of chronic fatigue. So, um, you know, that, that is presumed to be, you know, somewhat of a, of a lasting symptom, and some people can't shake it. Um, digestive issues are another long-lasting symptom that a lot of people are reporting. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like there are these, these things that hang on and make the condition extend beyond uh, what would be maybe a normal recovery period. Uh, whereas a lot of people, this, you know, the symptoms go, are high. I'm, I'm going to ask, recover quickly. is this what leads to their death, typically? Um, that I do not know. I, I think that's a little out of my league to say that. Uh, I, I know that it does contribute to the factors that can cause them to, to continue to falter, but I don't know if it's actually the the specific cause of death or not. I think that's more of a question for, for a physician. The uh, tracking and tracing, is that still going on? Absolutely. Uh, we have, um, I think the last time we talked, we, we talked about the fact that we were looking for help from the Ohio Department of Health. They very generously have made assistance readily available to health departments throughout the state um, because as we attempt to continue on with some of the regular functions that we have, uh, the contact tracing and the case investigation takes quite a number of people, and it's a constant issue. Um, due to the number of cases that we have here locally, we are working seven days a week. So it is a large number, portion of our staff, and it's a number of people that we're working with through the Ohio Department of Health that are assisting us right now. So we are, as I say, going full-blown about 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, here in Cuyahoga County, do we have any feeling for in, in these contacts and tracing people uh, as far as where the infections seem to take hold? Where are people? Are, are these family gatherings? Are they in bars? Uh, or, or where are they happening? Well, what we're seeing is... Um, I think there are five distinct places, Nick, that, that we've that we've defined through our contact tracing efforts. The primary one seems to be gatherings at private residences. Um, it just seems to be too many people, um, not not restricting it to people within your own household, um, people not wearing masks, uh, and this sort of leads into the second one, which are after hours activities. And, and I think where bars and restaurants get involved in this is. You know, these are places where people congregate, and then due to the, the orders issued by the state, um, the hours of service are not what they normally are. So when people pack up and leave, they're usually going to somebody else's house. And, you know, just by nature, when people drink, they tend to relax a little bit. You know, they tend to, to get a little more casual. So in those instances, we see people coming close together, not wearing masks, um, you know, the same thing as, as we do at some of these private residences. Um and then the typical thing that the governor mentions, which we still see very often, are weddings, funerals, uh, parties, um, and then lastly, extracurricular activities in schools. You know, we hear a lot of talk about whether kids should be going in person and whether they should be going <clears throat> hybrid, which is a combination of remote and in person. And some districts are finding that they can go uh, fully in person. Some districts have, have found it better to use the combination. Some are fully remote. It really depends on I think the capacities and the logistical limitations of, of these districts. But having said that, what we're seeing is the kids are, are getting together in extracurricular settings, and that's where we're seeing a lot of transmission. Uh, I think on a larger scale, we're seeing that now professional sports would be an example. We're seeing more cases in the National Football League and college football. Um, so, you know, these places where a lot of people get together and they're with each other for prolonged periods of time, 
uh, it's you know just sort of trouble waiting to happen in many instances. We're talking to Kevin Brennan, the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, uh, trying to get an ever-changing idea of what's going on with COVID. And again, uh, thank you for being on tonight and sharing with us, Kevin. Um, I know with the things you mentioned, extracurricular activities, gatherings, private family gatherings, and so on, uh, if we look at people who want to be safe, how confident can they be that they are being safe if they are, are not exposing themselves to those kinds of group activities and are still being careful about washing hands, wearing a mask, and that kind of thing? Or is that confident? Are they entitled to be confident? Well, I think that's part of what the governor was trying to get to a little bit last night, Nick, uh, when, when he when with his press with his uh, his statements to the to the state. And where he was talking about masking, you know, he says it's incumbent upon people to be able to go into a retail establishment or a restaurant or a bar and know that those establishments are taking all the necessary precautions to protect people that come inside. Um, and that would certainly include all those things that you mentioned and then primarily mask wearing. Um, so I think, you know, he's, he's trying to provide that assurance. And I think for us, the advice that we give people is anytime you stray outside of your household or, you know, the people that you are very confident in knowing where they've been and who they've been around, anytime you step out of that that safety zone, we'll call it, um, you really are taking a risk. Uh, and I think that the, we don't we are not overstating that by any means, because we're seeing our cases, uh, our, our new cases per capita are rising. Um, our hospital admissions are probably likely to rise here in a couple of weeks after this rise in cases. Um, as I said, we're seeing you know a rise in fatalities. So all the indicators are going the wrong way. So, you know, we would urge people to kind of hunker down a little bit, I think, rather than expand uh, any thoughts they may have about, you know, increasing their interactions, particularly as we get to the holiday season. Are we sensing any continued resistance about complying uh, with, with these, uh, I call them mandates, but they're basically uh, medical scientific recommendations on how to control a pandemic? resistance? Well, we, we do see some, and I think we're all very used to what we're seeing, right? I, I think a lot of times that the issue becomes politicized, and, I and I'm certain I've said this to you before, is, you know, as your county board of health, our job is to be apolitical. We are just trying to give you the best advice we can give you based on science, medicine, based on the fact that we've been an agency for 100 years. We've been dealing with, with communicable disease for that entire time. We, we know there are best practices associated with that. So we're just trying to put forward the things that we know would work in, these, in a situation like a pandemic. So we hope that people could kind of shed the, the external factors and really get down to the, the strict medicine and data that, that supports what we're, what we're talking about. Oh, I, I agree with that. We're talking to Kevin Brennan. He's the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Kevin talking more about what's going on with COVID here in Cuyahoga County and what we can look forward to. So you're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words. I'll call away. Welcome back to the Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Kevin Brennan, the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. 
Kevin, you've been joining us regularly since the COVID started. Thank you so much for being able to share with us what in real time is going on here in Cuyahoga County. Uh, as we're, we're talking in the last uh, segment about complying with health department type recommendations uh, and the fact that there has been resistance to these, where some people still harbor the belief, albeit a wrong belief, that the COVID-19 is not serious and it is not as widespread as it is, and that uh, they can continue to conduct their lives as if it does not exist. But what can we say to them to convince them that this is real and it's only going to get worse if we don't have their cooperation? Well, and that's the difficult part. Um, I, I think maybe I can provide an example that may be uh, a little illustrative of what you're getting at here, Nick. Um, if we recall back in October, on the 12th of October, um, Governor DeWine uh, began to allow visitation at long-term care facilities. So, you know, for several months, people in those facilities had not been able to physically visit with uh, their, their loved ones and their friends. And so they lifted that, that order and allowed people to come in. Um, unfortunately, what we saw within about seven to 10 days of that order being lifted was an incredible rise in cases uh, within those facilities. And I think the reason, uh, one of the primary reasons for that, uh, that we suspect, I don't, I don't have validation of this evidentially, but I'm, I'm certain that we're probably right with our suspicions here, is that because so many people can be asymptomatic with COVID-19, meaning that they don't recognize any symptoms in themselves and they feel fine, these are people that, that were in that condition. They felt great. They were happy to go see their loved ones again. They got in that environment. Uh, unfortunately, some of them were asymptomatic, and they spread it to the staff and the residents who had been in those facilities who had for months been you know, very diligent about um, being protected and, and, and isolated and making sure that testing was going on. Um, so even with the best intentions, I know the governor is trying to look after, you know, people from the aspect of, you know, trying to provide um, support for mental health and for, you know, just the socio uh, and, and psycho-emotional pieces that go along with, you know, the, the physical contact that we can have by visiting people. Um, unfortunately, that really backfired. And shortly thereafter, several places had closed down again. Um, so it just gives you uh, an, an idea of how um, confounding this virus can be for us. It's very unpredictable. Um, it acts differently, as we have seen. It acts differently in, in different people. Um, you know, we could have 100 people and, you know, we could have a number of them that get mild to no symptoms or are asymptomatic. And we can have people that are become very ill, unfortunately, may end up on a ventilator in a hospital and pass away. So the unpredictability of it is the thing that we really want to get across to people. And I think the other thing is with young people, you know, we've seen these lingering and lasting effects, as we alluded to in the previous segment. So just because you recover doesn't mean you're going to recover and be back to normal. So given that those risks are out there, we really, really want to stress to people to be careful. You know, as we've been talking, and not just you and I talking, but people generally talking about uh, coronavirus fatigue, that we've been on edge and we've been trying to protect ourselves and everyone around us since March, essentially. Uh, the only thing that seems to be a, a real bright spot on the horizon is the vaccine story. And the fact that it looks like there are some vaccines that are almost ready to roll out. Uh, from the County Board of Health standpoint, uh, what have you been hearing there as far as method of distribution, timing, and some of the talk with other people 
is that with the uh, problems going on now, with the surges going on, it's possible there might even be an early release of vaccine. Have, have we heard anything about that, or what's your understanding today? Um, we we don't have any definition about that yet, Nick. And I think it's I think it's what's encouraging is that the the initial trials, uh, especially from um, the Pfizer company, were very encouraging. They were exhibiting a 90% effectiveness rate. Now, to be cautious, that is, you know, some of the preliminary work that's being done, but it's very promising nonetheless. Um, as far as the timetable goes, we are pretty much at the ready um, to be part of the distribution chain, obviously, for the vaccine. We're just waiting for the indication from the CDC, basically, and the Ohio Department of Health as to when that vaccine will actually be ready and will be shipped. So I can't answer your question about when, but I know that we're getting closer, and it looks like we're getting closer by the day. So that's very encouraging. Um, a couple of things that we want to just mention would be, in terms of who will get the vaccine, there is a, a prioritization uh, among who will be first and second and so forth. So first of all, there, it'll be people who are high risk in high risk positions and first responders. So that would obviously include people who work in hospitals, uh, firefighters, uh, police. Uh, a lot of people in those categories. Then next would come adults in these long-term care facilities. And for obvious reasons, right, we know why that would be as close to the top of the list as, as we can get. Um, then we look at people like school staff, public health workers, uh, people with underlying conditions, people who are in group homes, people who are in jails, um, you know, these, these congregate settings. Because as we've seen very vividly uh, throughout the entire world here, Congregate settings are really, uh, you know, an instigator for an outbreak. Uh, then we look at people who are, you know, otherwise listed as occupations at risk for exposure um, based on the jobs that they perform. And then finally, it will be the, the general public. So there are, you know, as I mentioned, five different categories there. Um, but we want to make sure that we want to make sure that the people who are needing to respond and people who are at the greatest risk are those first in line. And then we'll move down from there. Where would the 60-plus cohort fall? Would they fall in that high-risk group, or would they be part of the general population? Well, I think when, in, in the order of what I listed, they may fall into – I imagine a lot of them could fall into that category of people with underlying conditions, right? So if your physician identifies you at being higher risk because you have something, like we mentioned before, asthma, cancer, diabetes, whatever the case may be, um, you know, you could fall in that category. Um, and then it's largely based on the kind of job you perform. You know, so if people of that age are, are in the workforce and they don't fall into any of those categories, they will probably be then in that last, that last group, which would be the general public. Now, now I understand logistically that there's uh, plans underfoot here to be able to store and to ship and to move and make available vaccines by the tens of thousands of, uh, of doses. The, uh, the question that comes up with it is, the first story I heard is that it's probably going to be distributed by traditional methods, such as pharmacies, like CVS, Walgreens, that kind of thing, and your doctor and urgent care clinics and, and that kind of thing. With the surge going on and the fact that uh, there's a lot of the vaccine that's already available and getting ready to be put into the pipeline, uh, is it possible or is there any likelihood we might see something similar to what we had back in the H1N1 time, where the Board of Health operated 
and vaccination clinics around the county. Is there any talk or plans about that being being discussed at this time? Yeah, certainly. I, I think as part of overall preparedness efforts on a state and, and a county and then a regional level, we're always looking at the opportunities to provide mass vaccination clinics. Um, I'm certainly not in a position to say whether that will happen or not, but it is something that we very regularly prepare for in public health. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, we, we had that situation with H1N1, um, and I think that this is, this is similar. So I would say that certainly those plans have been reviewed and they were probably in place. It's just a matter of whether or not they get executed. And that's not something that, that I could tell you as we sit here today. No, but from what I'm gathering is that it, it, there's an awareness of that option and whether or not it's oh, selected or not. Absolutely. Yeah. I see. Well, we'll see how things go because of the fact that we have so many cases and the new cases are plussing up or 10%. Uh, and at least, uh, as you're talking about now, we haven't seen any reversal yet. So we hope the governor's recommendations really uh, ring home true to a lot of our residents by reversing things. Yeah, we a absolutely. I mean, we, we just hope that, that people can, can really gather, I think, Nick, what, what the governor's been, been saying. And I think if you've listened to any of our press conferences, what our medical director, Dr. Gullett, has mentioned numerous times is, we need to be attentive to our sense of community here. We all have to depend on each other. If we all want to have some sort of resumption of what we used to know as a normal life and get back to all those activities, we really are interdependent upon each other. And so we really need to be considerate of each other. And I think those tenants that we talk about, right, the social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, and so forth, those all feed into that, trying to keep our community as healthy as possible. Well, like the governor and like I'm hearing from you, uh, it's up to each of us as an individual responsibility being a citizen and resident of our county. We have to do these things and make uh, a turn occur and get those case numbers down. Well, I'd like to thank Kevin Brennan from the Calgary County Board of Health for joining us tonight. We'll have you on again to keep us posted as far as how this uh, very dangerous pandemic is working itself out. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate you having us on, and we wish everybody the best of health. I agree with that totally. So thank you, Kevin. And uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. Yes. And yes. Welcome back to Uber. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, we're going to talk tonight in the next few segments to a good friend from the Ohio legislature, Tom Patton. Tom, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Nick. Always a pleasure talking to you and finding out what, what's going on. Uh, by the way, congratulations on the election, the re-election. You're back in the state House of Representatives, facing a lot with regard to COVID and the economy and the schools and, and so forth. Uh, as we're looking forward into 2021, how do you see what's going to be happening in the state of Ohio and what your job will be in the legislature? Well, you mentioned two significant challenges, and they're related, obviously. The economy took a, a dive nationally, but uh, especially in Ohio. Um, you know, we have at least a $2 billion shortfall 
that we anticipate having as we approach the uh, the budget. And unlike the federal government, uh, and it's a good thing, uh, Ohio has to balance the budget. Matter of fact, in the month of May and June, we had to shed $335 million uh, in a budget correction bill to make sure we came in June 30 at the end of the fiscal year balanced. And so this year we're uh, anticipating $2 billion, and certainly now is not a time to think about raising tax to cover it. So uh, fortunately, over the past, uh, uh, started with John Kasich, who came into office with $0.89 cents, uh, in the rainy day fund left over from uh, former governor. Uh, um, and he, uh, we, over the, his term and then the, the first few years under uh, Governor DeWine, we've raised that to $2.7 billion. So if there's ever a rainy day opportunity, I think this is it. So uh, I think we're going to lean heavily on that from a standpoint of balancing the budget and trying to keep the state uh, in all the various state departments operating. Um, our, our challenge, of course, is also the unemployment fund, which uh, it's been our re- unemployment reserves, which were challenged in 2008 and nine and depleted. We just like in 2017 finished paying back uh, almost uh, $1.7 billion that we had to borrow um, for unemployment and of which about 300 million that was interest. And so now we're going to be looking at, uh, as as every month goes by, we're borrowing more and more from the feds because almost all the states are doing it, by the way, because uh, un- the unemployment claims are still high and people still aren't. Uh, uh, a lot of people are going back to work and a lot of people have not had the opportunity to return to work. So that's a challenge. But, you know, on the subject of the COVID, um, what we need to do is to make sure that all the local governments, our local cities, our local you know townships, especially at the county levels, you know, we have to make sure that we provide testing. And if the vaccine is uh, going to be appropriate, we need to make sure we set up uh, opportunities for folks to get it, uh, those that want it, those that need it, as swiftly and as quickly as we can. Um, it's it's good news that there's a, a vaccine uh, in sight, and uh, there might be more than one. Uh, we'll see. But those are the uh, the immediate challenges as we enter into 2001, is to get the COVID under control and get people vaccinated. Make sure we we, we work with our uh, our local governments and especially the health departments to make sure they have all the resources that they need. Uh, I know that. Uh, you know, contract tracing is mm-hmm. something that uh, is an important way to determine, you know, why the numbers are going north, you know, instead of south. And uh, in or- it's, it's like the normal flu season, if you compare it to a flu, uh, because that's when people are more inside and not getting as much fresh air and the ventilation systems in their workplaces or uh, their homes, you know, simply might be recycling air that isn't the healthiest. And uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's there's always something to keep you busy down at the state house. Is there a feeling that with regard to the coronavirus still being around and during this time frame on the increase, before we're distributing vaccines, uh, how, how real is this for the 
people of the state of Ohio to actually take it seriously, wear masks, and keep their distancing. And during the upcoming holiday season, basically trying to bite the bullet and keeping away from large, even large family gatherings. Yeah, as, as near as we can tell from the results that the governor has shared with us in the legislature, you know, most of the spread, uh, the current spread, uh, is not really being hap- it's not happening at the schools as they feared. It's not really happening in the restaurant and bars because they've taken the opportunities to uh, to distance the tables and distance the stools at a bar. And there's there's plexiglass in between. And uh, even at work, you know, a lot of places when people go to work, they're being you know tested at work. They're being uh, their temperatures are being taken. They're being told if you have any kind of uh, you're not feeling well at all. Any of the symptoms we've been we've been asked to be concerned about but yet what it is is when people are letting their guard down now i understand this has been an ugly you know six seven months and i think there's i call it COVID fatigue people are tired of sitting at home and they're tired of not being able to visit their grandchildren you count me as one of them um but we have to understand that if we be patient you know a while longer. This is something none of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. And hopefully uh, it will be at least another hundred years before it ever has to happen like this again. But, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult, but people should do as much as possible to wear your mask, any opportunity that you have to where you're outside where you're, excuse me, where you're among other people, even if they're friends, even if they're neighbors, you had a cookout, this is where we think the spread is happening when people let their guard down because, well, that's Joe and Fred, that's Joe and Betty. They're the neighbors and we're going to have a cookout or they've invited us over for Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner at the Patton's house, uh, when only half of us show up, uh, are about 80, 90 people between my brothers, mm-hmm. sisters, nieces, nephews, and so on. And this year, uh, it's a collective decision from all of my siblings. You know, that we're just everybody's going to hunker down and just have their own and uh, little at their own little house with their own little families. And uh, uh, it's just, you know, it's and it's not pleasant. You know, I mean, you, obviously, you, you love those opportunities to get together as families and friends, but we have to be much more diligent. You know, and there's a, I understand there's a segment of people out there that don't believe in masks. They don't, they think this is just another flu. And, uh, uh, well, this isn't just another clue. Of course not. But the, the 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 phone calls I receive are from people that think the governor is way over bounds. He's way outside of bounds, rather, and he's overreacting. And uh, you know, he enjoys the moment of all of this. Uh, I mean, I, that drives me crazy because you know, if you if you sit and talk with him, the, and, and if the people can't see it on the TV screen, just look a little harder. He is gravely concerned about what's going on in Ohio, and he knows that the decision stops with him as to difficult decisions and not always popular decisions, you know, and we don't know how many lives he's already saved. Uh, and he, you know, but as we, as we see the numbers continue during this season now to begin to spike mm-hmm. uh, way, way, way beyond the numbers, you know, yes, we had it under control for a while, but. You know, as the weather turns cooler and we get into the uh, into the cooler months, and again the Magic traditional cold and flu season, yeah, it's just it's just it's 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 out of control, and so you can't.
can't do enough. You know, you can't be careful enough. You know, for for the people that aren't uh, maintaining their distancing, they're joining large groups without masking and, and that kind of thing. And we're going to take a break here in a little bit, but I, I want to sort of set up for the next question when we come back off of this break. Is just from talking to people and being a lightning rod in the state legislature where you're hearing all of the scientific information, all of the statistical information concerning COVID, and where you are, you can see the interrelationship between the effects of COVID and the economy to know that it's all related. So what we want to um, talk about when we get back is come back and talk about the fact of, do you have an opinion? How do you account how people are uh, basically rejecting the truth of the science of it? Well, what, what really counts for that? Because it's, um, it's a difficult thing, and it's, uh, to me it just seems irrational to reject science. Yet, yet we don't have a unanim- unanimous front where everyone should be joining in. So, uh, in any event, we'll come up, we're going to come back. We're talking to State Representative Tom Patton from the Ohio House of Representatives. We're going to be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHA, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. with our final segment of the Advocate for tonight. We're talking to State Representative Tom Patton about the state of the state, essentially, and we're still in a COVID thing, which will be in a COVID thing into 2021. So we're talking about how we're doing and how we may be doing. Just before the break, just before the break, we were talking about the division we have in the population, not just in Ohio, but around the country, between the people who are listening to the science and following the recommendations of the experts. And then we have sort of a political faction that thinks that this uh, COVID is a a farce, some type of untrue situation, and that people don't have to abide by the precautions that are being recommended by the experts. And, And Tom Patton being there listening to all the different stories and versions and information and facts. Tom, I ask you, what What's your feeling toward or explanation as to where we are and how we get everyone together to defeat the COVID by getting people to buy into what's going on with the science? Well, you know, the one thing I took note of is the fact that age has a lot to do with it. Um, You know, and from the very beginning, uh, we were warned that uh, the elderly, um, you know, the over 60 crowd, uh, especially people with pre-existing conditions, um, and that's why I think it hit the nursing homes as, as hard as it did, uh, because, you know, frankly, the people in the nursing homes are already significantly compromised. And the moment that it gets into a place like that, where their immunities are as low as they could ever be, that's why it, uh, I think 71% of the deaths have occurred between nursing homes within, and then also prisons with their elderly and the people that are living in a, uh, uh, in a common area like that. And, uh, but so I, I see at the state house, I see my colleagues that are in their 30s, the 35 year olds and, uh, the maybe 40 year olds. And despite the governor's order, you know, to keep a mask on in public, 
uh, at our last session day, which was a while ago, about you know five weeks ago. Um, I'm looking at my colleagues, these younger guys, and I'm saying, you know, the governor, <laughs> the governor ordered you to wear masks. And, and I said, you're going to be on TV because they televised the state house uh, hearings and uh, and session days. And they just they they looked embarrassed and nervous. But, you know, they're trying to make a statement that, you know, this is not really a disease. And these are elected leaders of their community. And so, um, you know, they've taken this and went, my God, we had a gentleman from Claremont County tried to get the governor arrested. He went to his Claremont County Sheriff and tried to swear an arrest warrant for the governor. And as I say, you know, the, the the one question I asked people, I said, what do you think the governor's getting out of this? You know, I mean, what do you think? I mean, why is this something that he would want to exert authority uh, that isn't necessary? Why he'd want to make decisions that hurt people potentially, but still have to be made? I and mean, what is he gaining from this? You know, and I said, that by itself should tell you that He's listening to the sciences. He's listening to the experts, and he's take, watching trends not only here in the in, in the continental United States, but abroad in other in other countries over in Europe and throughout the world, and and trying to stay, you know, reactive to that. You know, I remember early on in a personal conversation, he says, "Tom, this is the very beginning." He goes, "I just need to buy some time." And this is before we had enough ventilators, before we had enough beds in the event of an overflow and overload. That's when he ordered the first shutdown. Uh, back in March, and uh, we did. We 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 were able to reduce the curve. But as I say now, it's a combination of people that are fatigued, they're tired of the masks, or they've never thought the masks were necessary. They don't want to listen to the science. They think this is um, there is a reason the federal government, you know, put three hundred billion dollars into uh, the fast track program to try to get the vaccines. I mean, it's something that we took seriously and. If, if we have a vaccine before the end of uh, 2020, as it looks like we probably will, it, it's remarkable. Warp speed was the name of the program, and this really is warp speed because the earliest it took, the, the shortest amount of time it took to develop a vaccine before this was for mumps, and it took four years to develop a mumps vaccine. So to do this in less than a year is nothing short of a miracle, and we should be very pleased with the collaboration of the folks that were able to do this. But for heaven's sake, you know, if you miss Thanksgiving dinner this year with your parents, you know, be happy that there's a good chance you'll be able to have Thanksgiving dinner with your parents next year or your children or grandchildren, whatever the case may be. It's, it's, yes, it's inconvenient. It's not as much fun, but it's the smart thing to do. You know, and if the experts are overly cautious, well, then 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 let them be overly cautious. But better to be overly cautious than to understate it and under and I get, under. I get the feeling. I get the feeling that because we're so divided on the issue of precautions versus no precautions, that uh, the only thing that's going to change the momentum of the spread of COVID and our return to economic. Uh, economy that we had prior to COVID is going to be the vaccine. Do you, do you see that being effective in 2021? I think that's the only thing, uh, because the herd immunity uh, is only now at about four or five percent. It's not, we're not going to overcome this uh, without 
the benefit. But even still, you know, with the uh, the same people that don't want to wear masks won't want to take a vaccine, you know. But it will still, and if enough people are able to take the vaccine with this pr- proposed 90% effectiveness, um, I think before the one-year anniversary of the shutdown by March 13th of next year, that was the anniversary date of when the governor first, you know, shut down the state. I think we should be economically, there shouldn't be anything closed down as far as businesses. Uh, I think restaurants will be a full capacity, full hours, full complement of, uh, and I think the spacing issue won't be as severe. I think we will be pros- will be prosperous again, uh, maybe not in the first quarter, 2021, but I think the second quarter of 2021 will be a remarkable economic turnaround. That's how I'm looking at it. And hopefully, as we approach the end of this uh, two-year budget, which is June 30th of next year, maybe we don't have to dig all the way into that $2 billion shortfall. Maybe some of it will be able to rebound when people are back at work and they're off unemployment and they're paying taxes and they're buying cars and they're Going to going to restaurants and they're, and they're paying sales taxes on their different purchases and so on, which is what keeps you know the the, the, the state economy going. I think all those things are going to happen. And uh, if they were still talking about maybe vaccine, or if they were still talking about it's it's a year away, but the fact that they're talking about a vaccine being almost here, you know, being literally almost at our doorstep. Uh, I'm just curious how many people, Nick, the folks that are the anti-maskers, and they, I wonder how many of them, will, if once that vaccine's available, the first to cry out, well, I want to have my neck, put me in line, you know. Uh, there was actually, I was forwarded an article today, mm-hmm. a doctor that was put on a panel by uh, Mr. Biden, who said that they shouldn't give the vaccine to anybody 75 or older just because the quality of life to people after 75 really isn't worth it anyway. And I couldn't help but remark to the friend who sent this to me. I said, I hope Mr. Biden will be 79, 79 and his next birthday read this guy's report. Because the report is, it, it's chilling that some people say, well, after 75, you know, candidly, you know, as we all say, you know, yes, t- today's 60, yesterday's 45. You know, 80 years old today is yesterday 68 because we're living better, longer, healthier. Uh, and yet this doctor appointed to this COVID uh, crisis by Mr. Biden just recently is of the mindset that when the vaccine comes out, the last people should give it to is any of you 75 or older. I just think that's crazy. My goodness. Well, if that's true, I, hopefully we all have to stand up and shout and complain about it. And uh, that is not the way it's, it's going to go. Hopefully. Well, as but, I say, uh, this is one guy. This is one guy, and I think that uh, that's why his article is going kind of viral. Just today, I saw it for the first time, obviously. But uh, a friend from high school sent it to me, and I, um, you know, as I read it, I, I couldn't help but chuckle. And I wanted, to, and I actually responded. I said, "Does does." Mr. Biden, no, he'll, he'll be 79 years old at his next birthday. He'll be the only guy wow. in high school reunion going forward. That was my wow. response. But there you go. It's all well, on, that note, it's on that note. And even I was just trying to say, it's all in the science. We get the scientists are sometimes at odds with one another. I hear you. Well, anyway, I'd like to thank Tom Patton for joining us tonight. Thank you so very much. And uh, keep up the good work down in Columbus and get us through the uh, COVID and back to normal. 
I appreciate it. It's always great talking to you. You take care. You too. Take care. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea with nothing to do.